The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. Today's a very exciting day. I'm having coffee with Dr. Antonio Pellicer. Dr. Pellicer truly needs no introduction. Briefly, he is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Valencia, and he's also the co-president of EVRMA. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you, Andres. The coffee is excellent. This American coffee is excellent, by the way. <laughs> I'm happy you liked it. Um, tell us a little bit about, about you first. Who is Antonio Pellicer? Where did you grow up? Kind of who were you before you joined the field of reproductive medicine? Um, well, this is a long story. To make it short, uh, I was born in Gandia which is a small town, 70 kilometers from Valencia. And uh, I basically did all my studies in Valencia at the University of Valencia. And also I did my residency at the university hospital there, where I realized that I, I at some point, I uh, go uh, outside of Spain to, uh, to, to, to improve in... Um, the field that I, I really thought that was important in studies and gynecology. So initially I went to Germany, but I finished up uh, in the United States. And um, when I came back uh, to Spain, we uh, created EV, and um, now we are 30 years working at EV. So this is basically how it worked uh, in my particular case. That's amazing. 30 years already. Yes, 30 years. In, in, in 1990, we started, we created EV as, you know, as a project in which we wanted to, um, to share the, the, the pillars of the university. So education, uh, research, and also excellence, excellence in, in clinical care of our patients. And in fact, it became an, an also an important um, uh, business uh, activity where we had many employees, more than 2,000. And I, I could never expect that uh, 30 years later, when we were exactly cele- celebrating the 30 years of IVF, we had to stop activity. Everybody went home because of this uh, coronavirus pandemic so for me uh, it has been devastating it has been really devastating but now we are happy we are uh, again recovering from there and um, and always pushing and going ahead absolutely when 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 you started 
EV and when you started in the, in the field in general, things obviously were a lot different, both in the field itself and, and for you, your role was very different too. Um, what was, in, in the very beginning, what was a regular day like for you? Well, this uh, may sound like a joke for you because if you can imagine that uh, I did, a, 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 the, at the very beginning, I did everything. So when I went to uh, the University of... Um, the University of Erlangen in Germany. I was working in Germany because my boss uh, was a strong believer that uh, the Germans are, were the best at that time. So I went to to work uh, um, at the University of Mainz. But in Erlangen, the, in Germany, it was the first place where they did the first um, IVF baby. So I went to Erlangen to learn the technique. And when I came back, to Valencia, I did myself everything from uh, in, uh, re, re, retrieving the eggs from the patients through laparoscopy, inseminating the eggs, growing the embryos, and then performing the transfer. After a few months, your mother joined me. <laughs> so she, <laughs> she was a great help uh, uh, for me because then we split the work. She did the lab work and I, I did the clinics. Uh, but it was totally different to what uh, we have today. We did, we we actually didn't understand how important was uh, a series of uh, safety measures and so many things. We didn't have the, of course, the machines that we have today. The only thing that remains more or less the same is the gonadotrophins, the stimulating drugs. This is more or less the same, but the rest is totally different. Right. Totally different. I can only imagine. Speaking of things that changed since since you know the last 30, 40, 40 years, if you could pick out just maybe four or five kind of key moments, key developments. I mean, the first the first key moment is without doubt the use of a transvaginal ultrasound. I mean, that was a breakthrough. That was a, a breakthrough because you know uh, IVF was developed to. Uh, to treat um, tubal infertility. So when we perform uh, laparoscopies to retrieve eggs, many times the, the eggs didn't show up. I mean, they were involved in, uh, in additions. So it was really, uh, we, uh, we had a couple of complications during laparoscopy because in order to, to get into the, uh, into the ovaries to aspirate uh, the, the follicular uh, uh, contents. So ultrasound, uh, I think it was the introduction around 1986. It was a big uh, a breakthrough. The second one uh, probably was in 1992. There were two. One of them was ICSI. ICSI uh, was absolutely relevant because um, it changed uh, the, the way we practice uh, today and basically male infertility dis disappeared. Uh, until the development of ICSI, we uh, still had a lot of troubles with, um, with um, bad sperm samples. However, since then, we basically don't use any more uh, donor sperm unless we are treating single women or, or another type of, of patients, but not male infertility. So ICSI was absolutely um, for me, the number two. 
And in parallel, in that year, Alan Handyside published in um, in uh, in the in the United Kingdom the first analysis of the embryos looking at uh, monosomic diseases, and from there derived the the also the analysis of the chromosomal contents, and all in all, what is today called uh, pre-implantation genetic testing. I think that, that this has been also um, very 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 important for the development of ART. And, uh, and also, in general, as uh, point number four, because you asked me for four or five, so also <laughs> in general, I think that uh, what we have seen in these 30 years or 40 years is uh, improvements in the lab. So there are so many so many improvements in the IBF lab that uh, in the end have resulted in embryos of better quality. And uh, this is uh, absolutely relevant and it's worth to mention because again, if you think about it, the way we stimulate patients is more or less the same, little bit, something has changed, but not much. The embryo transfer techniques have improved using ultrasound, but the, we still use the syringe with the catheter as we did in the, in the, in the beginning. It is all about the quality of the embryos that uh, has made the changes and improved the implantation rates that we had uh, 30 years ago. That was about um, 6% in the best labs in the world to 60, 70% that also the best labs in the world have today. So we have uh, increased 10 times uh, the chances of, of uh, embryo implantation. Right. Speaking, just to pick one in particular as, as an example, I, I'd like to get your perspective, for example, on the on, on ICSI. ICSI became pretty quickly kind of a, a widespread thing that everybody was doing because, like you said, it, it kind of almost rendered male infertility a thing of the past pretty much. Um, and it was, it was very interesting. I, I'm interested in knowing from your perspective, how did that process happen? Kind of how did you live through the you know, the first few papers that were interesting about it until it becoming absolutely commonplace? Well, uh, you know that uh, ICSI was, uh, in principle, an accident. So um, there was a fellow in, in Brussels uh, doing um, what is, it was called SUSI. So basically the technique of improving fertilization with in male infertility was to introduce the, the sperm in between the sona pellucida and the ooplasma. So it was forbidden to enter into the egg because it was believed at that time that the, you may damage the, the egg and nothing happened. So that fellow, um, Gian Piero Palermo, um, apparently did a mistake and he introduced directly the, the sperm into the, into the ooplasma. And the following day, he had pregnancies. He had fertilization, and then they had pregnancies, and then they published the first paper in, in The Lancet. So, and uh, I don't know, for me it was evident that uh, the technique uh, was important, but uh, since it was an accident in the, in the lab, they didn't have animal studies 
and uh, it was done directly in human beings. So they they were very serious people in that department, and they did a, a serious follow-up of children from the very beginning. So and published uh, many papers in the 90s about safety of ICSI. But uh, yes, it's true. I mean, this technique was introduced without previous experimental work uh, because you know, appeared by, by chance, by, by an accident. So we learned the technique. Uh, we had one of the fellows doing um, this technique in, in Brussels. That summer, uh, we invited him to Valencia and we learned from there, from him. And uh, the results were spectacular. We had eight, 70% impl- um, fertilization rate, 80%. And, uh, you know, uh, it was amazing. Then we were the first to be able to uh, to biopsy cases of um, azospermia and freeze and develop a, a specific technique of freezing of this uh, poor, poor quality sperm and having children. And we published that with uh, our friend uh, Manuel Hill Salon that unfortunately passed away a few years ago. And, uh, you know, we that, that the, these years were uh, amazing because uh, we really had a, a strong uh, line of research in andrology. And we, we, did, we, we did publish some interesting uh, contributions to the literature. But the, the main merit comes from Brussels and, and, and from the accidental discovery of ICSI. So interesting. So, so great to hear the, the inside story of that. Focusing a little more on on today, um, obviously the field in terms of its of what we can do, but also in its actual size of people um, has grown exponentially, and then the people involved has have grown a lot. We just had a couple of weeks ago a virtual ASRM congress, and it was it was great. There was a lot of information, but we obviously all missed you know seeing each other in person and then celebrating the actual meeting itself. I, I can't help but feel like the old school people, so to speak, all, you know, you all know each other, it's a big community. And, you know, everybody always says it's a very small world. As that world is growing and expanding, it's definitely become a lot less personal and a little more diffuse. How important do you think to you is that familiarity with each other, that idea that we're all, you know, that we're all kind of friends working towards the common goal rather than these different competing groups within reproductive medicine? Well, uh, as you say, at the beginning, I remember when we started in Spain, we were three or four groups. So people used to meet to to exchange experience. Uh, I also enjoyed very much uh, to go to the meeting that David Meldrum is organizing every single year except 2020 in uh, California, first in Santa Barbara, now in San Diego. Uh, At that meeting, I enjoyed to go because uh, there were many uh, groups, including his own group, but also it was Richard Scott when we were not together. It was also Bill Schoolcraft uh, and others. And I enjoyed very much to to sit with them and and, and exchange our experiences and, and speak truly about what it works and what it doesn't work. Today, you know, we have many publications. There are many, many scientific publications devoted to uh, to infertility. 
and uh, I have had the honor uh, to serve as co-editor-in-chief of Fertility and Sterility for uh, almost 10 years. Uh, our term finishes uh, next uh, July. And uh, so I have had the opportunity to be um, informed in, in the first line of all the developments. So I think that today the, the world is um, moving through what comes in the scientific literature, but it comes so much that if you don't use the social networks and the social media that may help to spread the, the news that appear, it's difficult to get all this information. So today, although to, as you said, and mentioned, uh, and you mentioned that it's, it's nice to see your old friends and meet with them and have meetings, in reality, people is always checking his or her iPhone to, to find out whether something new comes up every day. Fair enough. We're, that's true. It's grown a lot, but we're definitely a, a lot more connected than we were before. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's fair. Um, I, I want to ask you kind of a, a similar question, but looking forward to what I asked you before about the, the three or four key things that have happened in the past. What do you think are yeah. going to be the two or three biggest breakthroughs or at least the biggest areas in which these breakthroughs are going to occur in the next 20, 30 years moving forward? Well, uh, according to uh, my understanding, uh, I might be wrong, but uh, this is the way I think. Uh, I still believe that uh, ART is all about the embryo and very few about the endometrium. I always said that uh, a good embryo implants anywhere. And uh, you as a resident, I'm sure you have assisted to, uh, in the emergency room to abdominal pregnancies, even in women who had no uterus. So an embryo, good embryo implants anywhere. And again, um, um, our um, colleague, uh, Paul Pirtea, um, presented last year at the ASR meeting how if you have three employed embryos, you reach 93% um, uh, delivery rates. So, but you need three employed embryos. Uh, with one embryo, you arrive to 65, 67. So what is missing here is still uh, ways to um, evaluate the embryo. So uh, PGT or pre-implantation genetic screening or testing is not enough. And I think that we need other methods that together with, with um, PGT may provide a, a better uh, selection process, maybe using algorithms uh, developed with the time blast machines. I don't know, but uh, uh, I think that still there is a way to go in the, in the lab. Now, the second point that became uh, apparent and evident uh, after the pandemic, but uh, we are working on it for some years. In, in fact, I tried 15 years ago and it didn't work because I didn't find the right person or the right people to, to join because I, I needed engineers, is uh, to uh, self-monitoring of the cycle. So... Uh, we are asking our patients to come to our offices almost every day 
or at least almost every two year, days. And uh, because of the pandemic, became uh, evident. But uh, uh, we are working with uh, with a, a segment of the population that works, and that they need the time for other things. So if we are able to change the way that we practice ART and patients. Uh, can get a monitor at home or from the office, um, everything will change. It's, and also the facilities you need uh, for IBF because you will invest less money in, in, in opening an, an ART clinic because you just need a space for pickups and, and also for, you know, for recovery, but no more than that. So I think this is, this is going to change a lot. And, and, and again, uh, we are trying to be uh, there and are developing interesting tools uh, to, um, to accomplish that. And, uh, and then what, what uh, the future will bring, probably also the lab uh, will become more automatic. Why? Because... Uh, the results are very hand dependent uh, because they are related to the uh, ability to do a good sperm injection, the ability to do a good embryo biopsy, the, the quality of the, of the culture systems. So it's manual, like uh, cars were manufactured 200 years ago. And today the process is totally automatic. So I think that uh, one day will arrive that the IBF will be done uh, in a more automatic way. That would be interesting. I'm, I'm very surprised you didn't mention as one of the things, um, the, the whole concept of, uh, of genomic editing and all of this, which is, seems to be in, in everybody's mouth nowadays. Well, the thing is that uh, that needs more time. So... I, and you were, I don't know if you mentioned that how I see the future in 10 days or 20, in 10 years or, or 20 years. Uh, I read, uh, I read uh, just uh, this morning a paper in Cell uh, using the CRISPR technique, uh, how they have uh, managed to remove an extra chromosome. But this has many uh, questions still to be answered. And uh, it will be, it will be another important in, um, field to work is obviously is not my field of specialization but what I understood from people who uh, are a basic uh, embryologist and, and basic uh, biologists is that it is possible but it's not easy and maybe uh, it's not feasible. Well, thank you. That, that's all we have time for unfortunately but it's been amazing to talk to you. Thank you so so much for being with us today. Thank you to you, Andres. Will you be back? Oh, of course. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Music